You're listening to the Illuminations Media Network. And welcome back to the Illuminations Media Network. I'm Tamara Westwood, your host, and I'm glad you could join us once again. But I'm going to share, while I'm waiting for our guests to come, a paper I wrote uh, in college as I was pursuing my psych degree. And uh, the debate was all about the true cause of depression and thus other mental illnesses or mental disorders, according to the DMS-5. I stood the ground that depression and other mental difficulties and challenges, behaviors that get in the way of living a functional life, an optimal life, behaviors that can harm others and ourselves, um, I spoke to that as part of a natural part of the human experience, and specifically uh, depression. And I spoke to the fact that depression, according to Hickey, 2009, is a very common and natural part of being human. You know that we have to also pay attention to the fact that the medical diagnosis of depression is relatively recent. It comes with many, many problems. We also have to examine the impact the physical environment can have on the individual, nutrition, early trauma, and how all of those factors can play in to any kind of a mental dysfunction or disorder in an individual. Now, certainly to speak to uh, that natural mechanism that the body uh, uses to reset itself after prolonged trauma. You know, if someone is on red alert for so very long because of a trauma or because of some awful thing that's occurred, or even due to uh, our negative thinking where we're inflicting uh, microaggressions upon ourselves over and over and over again, the weight of this can be overwhelming. And the body, the mind just has to reset so that everything shuts down. And of course, we're not going to enjoy the things that we used to enjoy. Of course, we're going to have low energy and we're going to just basically want to retreat. And in that, that allows the person to regroup and recalibrate the nervous system and hopefully get some help in shifting the thought process, letting go of the ruminating of negative thoughts letting go of attachment to um, painful ideas of old belief systems that that might be um, adding to the confusion and the doubt, low self-esteem issues. Also in my paper, I spoke about the uh, role of pharmaceuticals in supporting this in supporting the healing process. That is that certainly sometimes people are so low that they've gotten to a point where they just can't come out of that hole. And that an artificial means through pharmaceuticals or even through herbal supplements can help them to get back to that that square one so that they can remember what it's like to be human. But not to depend on that, knowing that that is just something that's used temporarily to pull the person to that place the most beneficial treatment is 
to have cognitive therapy, hypnotherapy, any other type of positive uh, psychotherapy to help the person during that time. You know, whether you're going to be using pharmaceuticals or not, the shifting in the perspective, the shifting of the thought process is what's super key here. Um, also, in my paper, I spoke to the idea that there's a chemical imbalance. Now, there hasn't been any evidence of that. There's no evidence. There's, there's no study that's backing that statement. Um, but we do know that our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs do change the chemistry of our brains and thus do change the way that we feel and the way that we respond in the world. So the brain chemistry that can show up is a result of the depressant, not the other way around. And that is um, what I found in my research, that that is where the depression is coming from. That is where the, the whole idea of uh, chemical imbalance comes from, that it comes from the environmental influences the person's belief systems, the thoughts, the ideas that lead to that over a prolonged period of time. Uh, I also highlighted some research that, oh, it's a super long uh, list, and uh, I respect and honor those who did the study, but I'm just going to say that it's, it's in the um, Bile Sci Med Science Magazine, and it's a uh, 2007, February, 191 to page 195. And so it's, to quote their findings here, it says that the perception that one's basic needs are not being met predicates the future depressive symptoms. Now, this is something that they found that when somebody believes that they're not going to get their needs met, they can go into a depressive state because, of course, they're worried, they're concerned, they're anxious about not getting their basic needs. And you might say, well, what are those basic needs? Well, certainly um, from Hickey's approach, Hickey speaks of those basic needs being eight physical needs. And these are the needs that take care of um, the physicality. Uh, some of them are also emotional components. Um, and these are all requirements for our homeostasis. So the first one is good nutrition. The second one is fresh air, uh, sunshine, physical activity, purposeful activity with regular experiences of success good relationships, adequate and regular sleep, and a sense of control in our lives. The ability to avoid destructive social entanglements while remaining receptive to positive encounters. So all of those break it on down that when we're not getting our needs met, all kinds of stuff can go awry. Maybe we will uh, resort to defense mechanisms where we are harming other people or ourselves in order to get some attention to what we need. 
You know, perhaps um, we're shutting down simply because we're at the point where we're saying, what's the use? So basically that's what my paper spoke to, um, the fact of perception. How am I perceiving the world? And what kind of world do I live in? Is it a dangerous place for me? Am I not going to get my basic needs met? Are the people around me antagonistic? Am I antagonistic towards myself? All of that over a prolonged period of time, it would stand to reason that pretty soon when that psychology starts to shut down about what it means to be the self in the world, that the physicality is going to be able to shut down too. And you may want to curl up in a ball and just give up. But it is a natural, a very natural mechanism that we all have there that helps us to reboot and reset. As with anything, we don't want to hang out there too long. (laughs) Because when we hang out there, it might be hard to crawl out of that hole. And so that's my perspective on depression. And there may be some other uh, ways of looking at other mental illness, you know, according to uh, what those needs are, what needs are not being met within the individual. I'm hoping that that did help. That was certainly my two cents. Um, I did a lot of research to try and understand that, and certainly that's because of my personal experiences. My mother uh, had um, a psychological disorder, and uh, it affected her life in a very negative way. But uh, the good thing about it is that it it, uh, raised my awareness. You know, as a child watching her pain and her suffering in that area of her life, and... uh, so now I get to research it and understand it to help other people avoid that situation, if at all possible, and to shed light on uh, how to avoid it or how to get out of it if you're in it. We have Jerry Marzinski back on the show. Oh, I know you remember those voices. <laughs> Last time you were on the show, Jerry, we dug into those deep aspects of what's really going on in the mind. You know, when there are these intrusive thoughts that are coming in that sound like us, but as we now know, they are not us. They are just hitchhiking a ride. Well, Jerry, welcome back. And I understand that you just got back from Egypt. You're still dealing with jet lag, huh? Yeah, I'll get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today in our show, we're going to be speaking about the myth. This is a myth buster show. We're talking about that whole idea that depression and probably other mental illnesses are caused by a chemical imbalance that is purely biological. Now, Jerry is here to wake you up. Jerry, let's go into the history about where that whole idea came from. Well, let's go back at the, uh, at the start, back in the early 1800s. You know, they didn't have anything to control psychiatric patients except chains and straitjackets. And uh, that took a lot of fighting to 
most of I know most of you guys out there have never tried to stuff a psychiatric patient into a straitjacket, but it's it's not an easy job, and people get hurt on both sides, both staff and and inmates. Yeah. They were still using those suckers when uh, when I was working in the state hospital, so uh, they didn't know what to do with these people back then. Um, so they would chain them up um, at these state hospital I worked in, Milledgeville, uh, they treated them very kindly, and they found that if they treated them kindly, they responded better. Mm -hmm. uh, but th their methods of treatment, you know, this is before drugs really came on the scene as we know them today, they started off with what they, something they called puking uh, with the schizophrenics. So th what, they, what they were trying to do is get these people under control as best they could. So what they'd do is give them an emetic to make them sick, and then they'd throw up. And you know how you feel after you throw up. You don't want to. You're you exhausted. Yeah. You're like, oh, man, you know. So, you know, that was one method of control. <laughs> then uh, they tried hot and cold showers. They uh, For the females, they gave them Epsom salt douches and um, Oh. Apple cider and grapefruit juice, uh, douches. Uh, this is this is the early pioneers of psychiatry here, and then you know in Europe they started with psychoanalysis. Uh, found it didn't work very well with schizophrenics. And, uh, the psychoanalyst said something like, uh, "the the schizophrenics are very adept at antagonizing and disagreeing with the therapist." <laughs> it's like there's a psychoanalyst trying to psychoanalyze a schizophrenic and uh, and they said uh, that they're disagreeing with the therapist uh, interfered with the progress in, in their talk therapies so you know didn't work real well with insane guys I bet I could see Freud right yep trying to talk to a schizophrenic huh? you know then they moved on to lobotomies with the more violent ones. So what they would do is get a virtually an ice pick or something and stick it through the corner of their eye and scramble their prefrontal cortex. I mean, just destroy their whole prefrontal cortex. And, of course, that turned them into a semi-vegetable. <sighs> at the time I got to the state hospital, I only had met one because they, they had stopped doing that decades before. And my initial impression after talking to the guy was he just wasn't quite human. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to put my finger on it, but nor was he violent or out of control. He, he was well-behaved. He was well-behaved, but he had half his brain missing. And he, he, like I said, he just wasn't quite human. He, mm -hmm. he, he was not productive. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't, uh, other than... But maybe feed himself and, and live in the state hospital. That happened to one of the uh, one of the Ken Kennedy children, one of the the daughters, didn't it? Seems like I remember reading something like that. Yeah, I'm surprised because they they stopped doing that a long time ago. Mm -hmm. But no telling. Yeah. Mm hmm. So then they moved on to um, something called ETC or electroshock therapy. <laughs> I watched one of these things. Yeah. Back in the, uh, back in, uh, I think it was the 30s, the state hospital I was, I was working in had 13,000 patients. 
and they would administer 3,000 of these shock treatments a year. Um, so these are bolts of electricity that were forced through a person's nervous system. Let me take you there. So I got a call from a uh, psych friend of mine in another psychiatric unit. He phone rang and said, uh, hey man, uh, Dr. X is doing a demonstration of this shock treatment over here in, in about a half an hour. And come on, get over here and you get to see it. I never saw one before. I just read about it. Mm -hmm. So he met me at the door and, and we walked back and here was this big, big room with pillars in the middle. And here's this Cuban psychiatrist lecturing a number of patients around this, this table. And here was this box, a wooden box with knobs and dials on it. And uh, he was talking and he picked up these two electrodes that were about this big, metal electrodes with wires hanging on them. He said, these, these are the shock pads where the, the electricity runs through. And then he smeared gel on them and he said, if we didn't smear the gel, then the electricity would burn the patient's head. That's how powerful it was. So <clears throat> then he, he's, he called to the nurse and here's a bunch of students around this, this gurney. Called the nurse and, and uh, said, bring in the patient. So here they have this little scrawny female, like old, barely walking. Here's two nurses dragging her to the gurney. And then they strapped her down, four point, and then across her chest, and then across her head. And I'm looking at them, man, you know, what are they doing? They're really fixing her to that table. And then the psychiatrist gets out this horse needle about this big. And he sticks it in this white solution and sucks it in, and it's like milk color. And, you know, I'm looking at it, and I ask him, I said, that's the biggest needle I've ever seen. That's a horse needle. What, what are you going to do with that? Goodness. He says, well, that's muscle relaxing. If we didn't give that to the patient, um, her bones would snap when we gave her the oh. shock. Convulsions. Oh. So they stuck it in her, and I'm, I'm watching this, and instead of just pushing it in her, they sucked blood out of her and mixed the blood and the stuff together. And I'm sitting there going, oh. And then they jammed the whole needle in her. Ah. And uh, then, then he hooks up these electrodes and he tells all of everybody to get back. And uh, he goes, okay, ready. And then he hits this button and this poor lady just starts flopping all over the table. Just this out. is a little tiny elderly woman. Elderly lady. And I'm just like, ah. shocked. You know, just absolutely shocked. And while she's doing this, he's still flapping to all these students, talking to all these students. You know? And then I'm going, when's he going to shut the damn thing off? And, and finally he does. And he's still talking to the students, you know, da, 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 not paying attention to the patient. And she's turning side nodded. She's turning blue. Uh -huh. And I'm like horrified. And I said, doctor, she's dying. She's turned, she's cyanotic, you know, and he goes, oh, like an afterthought. <laughs> and then he gets the, you know, the heart thing, the EEG thing, and gives her a shock on the chest, and she jumps again. And, you know, she wet her pants, and, and she, she was sweating and, and, and just laying there. And, you know, then her heart stops and her color came back, and I'm just overwhelmed with what I saw. The cruelty. I, I started walking away, and I almost fainted. <laughs> and I'm not weak stomach, but, you know. Oh. I, I hung on to a pillar, you know, kind of trying to 
get my because I was about ready to go down after that. And that's three thousand of those a year. Oh my! So that was that was before they had any significant kind of drug. Uh, now they also used that for punishment as much as they did treatment, and, and the people who ordered it were not the doctors but the attendants. They go, hey, uh, Johnny's causing me a lot of trouble these days, man. I think he needs to be a shock treatment. He looks depressed and he's agitated. And uh, bam, you know, they were the guys who determined who got the shock treatment. Oh. So, uh, and, and it was like a production line. I mean, 3,000 a year, they just lined them up and, uh, and, and hit them up. So then they started moving into some of the drugs, and they started with insulin shock. Okay. So the shock treatments did work for a while. I mean, it was it was surprised me that the voices, the psychotic voices, left for a short period of time after being shocked like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I read later there was a therapist uh, who was actually using static electricity to drive the voices out of out of the patients, and and it worked temporarily. So that, those shock treatments dumbed them down. And they, they were like stunned for a couple of weeks after that, and they weren't causing any problems. So here's, here's their treatment. Right, about control. About <laughs> control. And then they moved into insulin shock. And this is the coming of, uh, of chemicals. <laughs> and what they basically did there is overdose the patient with insulin, burned all the sugar out of his body, and... Uh, you know, Put him into shock, um, so you know it kind of controlled the symptoms for a little while, but only temporarily. And then they they do it again. So, uh, wow. And, and then they're kind of like, okay, what you know, what causes this schizophrenic symptoms? So mm -hmm. psychiatrists started out, you know, looking for somebody to blame, and they first blamed the mother. Well, it's the mother. She didn't feed him right, or she didn't give him the right nutrition, or she did this or did that. Put it all on the mother's back. Mm -hmm. She ate the wrong foods during pregnancy, or she did something to cause this. Or, I mean, imagine all the guilt that instilled the mothers that had schizophrenia. And mm -hmm. there's no evidence for that. None. It's just they just dreamt this up and went, all right, well, it's the mother's fault. So mm -hmm. when they found out it wasn't the mother's fault, you know, that, then they moved on to it's a genetic disorder. It's the genes. You know, they didn't find any evidence for that either. Right. So it's the genes, right? There's nothing that you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it except take their expensive, mm -hmm. destructive medications. Right. So then they moved into the era of, of what would be considered, you know, modern drugs now the drug companies are out there telling you oh yeah we spend millions and billions of dollars on drug research and uh you know that's why we have to ramp up the cost of these drugs to astronomical levels mm -hmm. well none of the initial drugs for psychosis were found in any kind of research they were found in dye chemistry labs dyeing clothing what? yes and the people who were working in those dye chemistry labs found that the dyes that they were using had this sedative effect and would dumb down the workers. So uh, <clears throat> this, this changed the story there. So one guy learned about this and you know, 
he, uh, every major class of drugs that psychiatry started using were found by accident in, in, around the 1950s, around 1950s in, in fabric dye research labs. Um, so what one of these guys did was kind of extracted whatever it was that was dumbing these people down and went to one of the psych hospitals and said, hey, why don't you try this stuff? You know, it might be a lot easier than stuffing these guys in straitjackets. <sighs> there was no research involved with this to start with. All that stuff about, oh, yeah, this, this heavy research, we got a billions of dollars in research. This was discovered by accident. Every single major class of psychiatric drugs were started and discovered in dye factories. So the hospitals, the state hospitals, found that, you know, this was a great way to manage populations. You just drug these suckers up. And, uh, you know, the, the, then the drug companies got hold of this, and they extracted the active ingredients from these dyes, and they started selling these things. Um, so they, they, would dumb, they would dumb down the entire population. And they never told these people, as far as I saw, the destructive effects of, of these drugs. You know, this, this calls to mind this new series. I believe it's, it's Amazon, <laughs> or is it Netflix? But with Julia Roger, um, called Homecoming. Yeah, I believe it's Homecoming. It's very interesting. Have you, if you haven't seen it, you definitely want to check it out. It's, it's speaking to this, but it's about uh, soldiers that have come home from, you know, being deployed. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're introducing these chemicals in foods to rewire them. I'm not going to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen it, but... It's, it's quite interesting. <laughs> I'll tell you, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> so for the first 10 years, they started using these um, tranquilizers. They were, what they were were major tranquilizers. <laughs> they had no idea how they worked. None. Zero. After 10 years, the chemical and uh, the drug industry got hold of these things and started putting out the rumor that they cured some kind of chemical imbalance in the patient's brain. So that's where it came from, that we so, induced this drug to sort out this chemical imbalance in the brain. Okay. The problem is, hmm. even while I was at the state hospital, they were telling me that. And when I started there, I believed that also. Mm -hmm. After a while, I started watching the psychiatrist, and you know, I never saw them give any kind of drug test or lab work to determine what anything was out of balance in the patient's brain, ever, right. ever. And it how about there. to date? Any anything? Any no, evidence of no. that? There is nothing. They have no test to to determine any chemical imbalance in the brain with regard to psychosis, depression, anxiety. Nothing. Now they they may <clears throat> they may say, oh yeah, MRI, but MRI only only measures electrical activity and and you know, blood concentrate, stuff like that in the brain. It has nothing to do with the chemicals or the chemical imbalance. They have no measure of any chemical imbalance in the brain. So wow. here, here they start like going, okay, well, the drug apparently works. Right. It looks like there may be an increase in serotonin, so they must balance uh, mm -hmm. some of the serotonin levels. 
you know. Right. So, so it's I'm just a the theory. In other words, it's just a theory. It's made up garbage, you know. So there's, they have no idea of what the chemical imbalance of the brain is or should be. None. Right. They don't know how much serotonin should be in the brain. So they just go, oh, well, it's a drug and it works. So it must be balancing something. So they have this weak correlation between an increase in serotonin and, and these chemicals that they're in, in the using. And a correlation doesn't mean, <laughs> it, correlation is not evidence. No. no yeah, not by long at time. all. No. Yeah. But they're selling $3.5 billion mm-hmm. of these drugs, and they're drugging down entire prison and, and state hospital populations, not to mention the population in general. They're dumbing them down at a horrendous level with this bullcrap they're saying. Well, that's all the time we have here on Blog Talk Radio. Learn more about Jerry at keyholejourney.com and watch the entire interview at Solutions Radio on YouTube. Peace and blessings. And remember, get your head together first and your ass will follow. Until next time, this is Tamara Westwood, your host.